Hi, Latinas in Clinical Research. Uh, we are here today with Shanna Bruflot. Uh, we're here to speak about, you know, a little bit about her backstory, get to know her a little bit more so that uh, we think she has a really amazing uh, career and a very interesting uh, work experience. So Shannon, if you can give us a little bit more information on, you know, your story and how our members can uh, get to know you a little bit more. Um, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I think I am one of the typical people that kind of fell into research on accident. Um, and then once you find it, you're like, oh, I'm staying here. So, <laughs> I took a long time um, so I've been in healthcare for 25 years. I started out um, working on my, I wanted to do international business. I then went to nursing. So I worked as a medical assistant through nursing school. I got to my clinicals and decided, wait a minute, I could go to pre-med instead. So I should have finished my clinicals, I didn't. I had switched to pre-med. Um, I then relocated to another, uh, another state and I got distracted uh, with work. And I also realized I could be an x-ray tech. I got selected for a pilot program in Virginia um, and it was one-on-one -on -one training for uh, maybe two months. And then I went and sat for my certification or my license and, and I passed. Um, in, the, in our program, there were 10 of us that they were trying this program out. And only one of us got all of the certifications in one try. Um, one other person got half of the certifications the second attempt. So I was rather pleased with myself with the studying, but um, I did enjoy being an x-ray tech as well. It gave me a different perspective in um, the healthcare field. Um, I then traveled up and down the coast for a while and I, at some point I graduated, graduated with my bachelor's degree. I have a bachelor's in biomedical science from Virginia, Jefferson College of Health Sciences, which is now owned by Radford University. And I realized I applied to one medical school. First off, you don't do that. And when I applied, they'd already filled all their seats that year. And I knew that I still applied. But I got waitlisted and I felt such relief. I realized that's not what I actually needed to do. I had just been, you know, you have that, you're focused on getting something done for so long. It's like, this is no. So I then diverted over to my MBA. And so I got my MBA um, based off of the physician I was working with at the time was the president of a clinic. Actually, he was the vice president at the time. And he, came, he would get frustrated that, you know, these students are graduating from executive colleges and then running hospitals and they had no healthcare experience. He's like, wait a minute, that's what you need to do. And so that's how I went back to get my MBA and started managing um, medical offices. I ended up in North Carolina and I was overseeing a few offices that had a medical a research component. And so that is how, from a management perspective, I realized this is a, there's, you know, cause in medical, in, med in healthcare, reimbursement goes down all the time. You're not increasing funds. So you're constantly looking for an additional revenue stream. And so from a business perspective, I fell into it from revenue. And then I relocated to Georgia, began working with a neurology group who wanted to grow their outpatient and inpatient divisions as well as their neurology practice. And I kind of began watching the coordinators and you know, when, you, when you're watching it from afar, you're like, that's really cool and started asking questions. So what did they need to do to, to a coordinator. Um, could I do this? <laughs> and um, that's where you start hearing all the stories how you have a, a private practice and the coordinator quits. And so whatever medical assistant is around, they're like, hey, you, you're next. 
coordinator. So um, that's how it, so we also have done that in the past. If you run out of um, staff, um, I find that is a good, interesting way to get into research. If you go find an office that has research in it and you go for whatever role you apply for, you qualify for, you network within that practice until there's an opening and they're usually gonna cross train you, especially if you're a good employee at their office, you can, you can train research, but getting the right attitude and the right motivation is hard to find. So that is one way I encourage people, find a plate. If you can't get in, find a place that has research and sit and wait, do whatever you need to do. You always volunteer, you help out, you cross train as much as possible. So I ended up here in um, Georgia in a neurology group. We, um, we streamlined, we separated everything out. Um, at some point we realized the medical practice was less as enjoyable as the research part of the company. So we went ahead and let the medical practice grow and we let those physicians go start their own and transition to 100% standalone private research center. So we, all of our volunteers were completely recruited. We had no referring pattern coming in. Um, we then built our recruitment team. Um, we would go to healthcare fairs. We would go to any kind of, um, we, we were based in neurology, so we would offer memory screens. It's important to have a baseline memory screen before you think you have problems. So you have a baseline number at some point. Um, we, uh, finger check, or, you know, glucose checks, cholesterol checks, you know, different things that people would want to know if you're at a health fair or um, an event. And that gets them to the table. And I, I think all of us will agree one-on-one -on -one with a, a potential subject is the, always the best way to recruit someone. They feel your passion, they feel your excitement, they ask questions and they, they get to meet you and it's, you're not just somebody on the phone. And so we grew that department so that it was continually feeding into the research group. We became a multi-specialty group. Um, it also grew to the point where um, we were a private equity attraction. Um, so that group was eventually purchased. And then uh, my job was uh, redundant. So my position was eliminated. And so that's how I left that group and off I went on to other opportunities. Um, so I did have a non-compete for a year. So I spent a year and a little bit over selling digital x-ray equipment because of my x-ray background. <laughs> um, but because of COVID, I wasn't a very good salesperson. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on COVID. Anyways. <laughs> that's fair. Everybody does, yeah. so that's fair. <laughs> I, can I can, like, Uber and Lyft drivers. I'm serious. They will, you can get some Uber and Lyft drivers into studies. But, yeah, selling digital x-ray equipment was a whole different thing. Um, so then I have also consulted with a few uh, medical research centers around Atlanta. And I am now at Morehouse School of Medicine. Very excited to be there. Um, they're it's, we all have concerns about underrepresented populations in clinical research. And I love being there because I get to be part of several parts of that. One, they're training physicians to go address health equity. Like that's the whole focus of the school. Like we are addressing health equity. Um, there, then we also have the center, which we, they, we've already got a great group of people and they do a lot of physician initiated studies. You know, the professors there, if they wanna do research, they're finding grants um, to fund it. Um, some of them may need assistance. And so that's where the clinical research center within the Morehouse School of Medicine um, is it's housed there. We are the ones who will coordinate it. 
and help them execute it. Um, the initiate, uh, physician initiated ones will help them, you know, go over the protocol, tweak anything that, you know, they may need assistance with, help them with their grant funding. Um, and then for the pharmaceutical studies, that is not something they've had a lot of in the past. So one of my main goals is to continue to streamline the processes that are already in place, continue to grow the division and take on more pharmaceutical studies because we all know the phase twos and phase threes, getting the minority populations in these, in these new drugs is crucial to these drugs also being more representative to everyone and not, you know, everyone. <laughs> that is how I got to where I am. <laughs> it's actually a very interesting story. I yeah. like that you have the private industry sponsored experience with um, neuro studies, I believe. And then now uh, with Morehouse, um, I have a lot of questions actually, but I guess, and we'll get to DE and I as well, I guess, when we talk about Morehouse more, but back to neuro studies, um, just because I'm personally interested. So, and if you can talk about it, what was it specifically, or I guess what number of things was it that attracted the private equity firm to that site or network of sites that you're allowed to speak on if I mean, I don't know what you're allowed to talk about. So several companies approached us so I can speak on um, generalities, like what they said, hey, this is why we're coming after you. So one of the things that we specialized in was Alzheimer's research and MCI, mild, co mild cognitive impairment, the pre-AD. And in fact, I don't know if you've heard of the global Alzheimer's platform. And yeah, they Monica and I did a few studies uh, using that network. So neuro studies was one of the first 11, the first year they opened the rest of them with outside of, um, uh, bioclinica bought another practice down in Florida. I can't think of Dr. Craig's. Uh, oh yeah. 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 Bioclinica did buy several sites actually in Florida. You're right. So it was, um, Sean Stanton's site and I can't think of the name and us that were the non-hospitals that first year, which I, I point that out because again, we like everyone, they were universities. Um, so what the, how they found the sites is they, they told us that they had gone to the pharmaceutical companies running the studies and said, if you have an AD study, what three sites do you want to conduct it? And then they took those, those responses and started with the top, the mo you know, and that the first 11 that year, but we were included in that. So the fact that we were uh, thought leaders in the industry and we are, were able to enroll, we were able to meet our numbers um, when requested. We were even at one study, we were an add-on site and we, within seven weeks, it was only open for seven weeks, we enrolled almost the most in the entire study and 90% of them had their lumbar punctures as well. So well, we- Was that really, just one site or multiple sites? And that was just one site for that study. Wow, okay. But um, if we'd have gotten two, that would have been, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> so. Yes, so that we were attractive because we were able to meet goals. We were able to start studies up, you know, quickly if needed. Was it um, was it site physician owned or was it um, non-physician owned? Physician owned. Okay, interesting. Yeah, uh, just asking for a friend, uh, Shanna. No, no biggie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so with Morehouse, um, like. It's very different, obviously, than 
the situation you left. Uh, can you talk about what's different and how it's different? So some of the differences I'm still acclimating and understanding myself. Um, as a private site, we didn't do a lot of, well, actually we didn't do any except for one NIH grant or grant funded study because as a private site, you don't really have a buffer of somebody else, a bigger entity. And it was gonna cost us to do it sometimes. Um, so I really enjoyed being able to be part of these studies that are NIH or NINDS funded that we, that we just couldn't afford to do in the past. Um, so also learning about grants funding has been interesting and fun. <laughs> um, yeah, you're definitely becoming, if you haven't already, you're becoming, I think by going to Morehouse, because most people in this industry, they tend to choose either industry uh, studies or academia, and you're doing both. Very few people have both, and I think you are uh, doing, you know, a good job at that. I mean, you're, you're developing your career pretty nicely, um, able to see both sides of, of industry and academia. Uh, when did you notice, I know you just joined recently. Five weeks but, ago. Oh, five weeks ago. Okay. Was diversity, equality, and inclusion, like, obvious from the beginning that that's important to Morehouse? Or was it just something you've heard uh, just now? Um, it is obvious. Um, they are an HBCU. Um, I believe they're, they were also, they may be the only, but they were the first JCO standalone research site HBCU that's JCO certified. Wow. wow. So what's the JCO actually mean for those that don't know? Joint, Joint commission. commission. Sorry. It's, it's like the equivalent of the FDA for hospitals. <laughs> yeah. I, I come you. from a, a healthcare background, like 10 years. So I worked with JCO accredited. And so I understand like when they go for those audits are pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. I actually had a question. Um, so when you were going through this process, because you have a lot of education background, um, how much do you feel that that played a part outside of your actual, just your in general experience, work experience, how much that played a part in getting to this level of director? I think it played a decent part because I had so many different aspects of like I had the business part, I had the healthcare part, I've worked in the industry for so long. Um, it helped me be able to review protocols and have minimal questions, obviously you still have some. Um, it, you know, having the MBA background, I was able to tackle contracts and budgets. I mean, I don't know how about you guys, but it's really fun when an attorney sends you something and you send it back with an error and you're like, oh, you no, we just had a lunch with one. Chris, Chris can tell you all about it. <laughs> Yeah. Um. Awesome. Awesome. And um, I was just curious, like as far as during your the beginning period that you were transitioning and like learning how much you enjoyed clinical research compared to what you were initially doing, um, did you do any, you know, just while you're breaking between like education, right, because you were going back and forth for different degrees, um, were you doing any side learning, like site certifications? Were you reaching out to organizations and networking? Or um, it was just kind of as you were going through your one-on-one -on -one work that you were, you know, 
I guess, leveling up on your, your knowledge? So I, I really do um, bounce all over. I also am a certified herbologist. Um, That's awesome. Works really well in our industry, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, am, I happen to be a vegan, so <laughs> that's how that kind of falls into it. Um, however, I, I understand science is important and medication advancement and disease advancement is important. So like, I, I understand there's, you know, there's some things I'd prefer we didn't do, but that's how we get to in human phases. Mm -hmm. uh, I also, during this period of time after I left neuro studies and I was doing the digital x-ray equipment, I went to Purdue online and uh, Purdue University online and completed my lean green six sigma, my lean, my green, yeah. Lean I saw green. that. I saw that on the LinkedIn. Is, that's for project management, right? Yes. Yeah. Funny story. We use a lot of it. All the CRAs, they use a lot of these tools. They're little project managers. <laughs> it's the same as the, as the CRCs. They are like a project managers in a, a smaller scale for each study. Yeah, they're like P PMs without the <clears throat> title. I mean, as somebody asked me, it's funny because somebody asked me today on Instagram, hey, what's what does a CRA do that a project manager can't do? And, you know, my answer was something around CRAs don't deal with budgets and planning and logistics, but everything else they did, like everything clinical, but there are some CROs, small CROs, small biotechs where there is no difference. Like you, <laughs> you do both. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I mean, a, uh, a lot of your background, including, I mean, I didn't do, I looked into it. I didn't do it, but I wanted to get certified in neurology. I, I love that stuff. So that's super interesting uh, in your background in medical and then oh, yeah. kind of jumping into the We hospital. might need to talk. We might need to talk yeah. because um, we, we may have, uh, we have a small CRO, Chris and myself, and uh, we got approached by a IIT, a doctor out of Las Vegas who wants to do some CBD studies. Um, oh, CBD so studies. So we may have cool. to talk. Yeah, because we need to talk like, IIT. We've done a few IITs before, but we've never developed a protocol uh, for them and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know if you have the time or the uh, experience, Jenna, but <laughs> we're definitely looking for help. Yes. And we would we would be open to doing that kind of study as well at Morehouse. Oh, wow. Okay. Good, good to know. I have a question in regards to the recruitment because uh, it seems that your techniques or the uh, strategies that you use in your previous uh, organizations were successful. So I would like to hear more about it because obviously that's also one of the most uh, uh, biggest challenges in the industry. And a lot of the um, clinics or small clinics uh, struggle with that. And, and, and we also, um, that's that's one of the things that we're trying to do through Latinos in clinical research is educating the population about clinical trials. So tell us about your uh, magic. <laughs> it wasn't magic. It didn't happen overnight. <laughs> um, we, I had the great fortune of a colleague, Marla, who had a background in marketing and actually had worked with them, I believe NBC at some point. And so she had a great marketing background and we were able to kind of put together a marketing activation plan. So we had the marketing framework from her. And then as we delved into different studies, we would tackle it with 
grassroots marketing. Um, we would make sure we were listed on any portals that were at no cost. We would decide what portals we wanted to be part of that would benefit us by name recognition. So sometimes you may be spending money on a marketing tool and you're not going to get a lead from it, but it's important to have your name out there for recognition. Um, we would, so we would try to do at least, we would set an amount of talks a week. So we would do four a month. Um, and if sometimes, sometimes we would go over and that was fine. Um, we would also do um, TV ads periodically. And we would, and, and it's also it depends on the protocol. Some protocols, there's just certain ways and tactics that are gonna get you the patients and you just stick with those. But when you're breaking into a new indication or you've got a new study and it's not working like it had before, now you're starting to do all your layering. Um, we made sure our Facebook page had a lot of followers. I believe there are up to 37,000 followers um, to the point where marketing companies, they'd be like, we would, we would do our banner ad on our page, but you actually have enough followers. We can do it on yours as well. So we would do it. We would compare. We would do one on theirs and one on ours and compare and see which one worked better. And they were actually about the same. Um, so again, ongoing name recognition, even if it's not bringing in a lead, you know, have it out there. Researchmatch.org is um, a, at no cost to institutions. Um, and I, you know, I asked them, like, I don't see us listed. And they're like, well, we didn't have any currently enrolling uh, or actually we, we had one enrolling, but we weren't getting anything. So we took it down. I'm like, that, so just so you know, just because it's not bringing you an active lead does not mean it's not working for you. Your name recognition is a big deal also, because say you, somebody has a question and goes to their primary care doctor. If their primary care doctor has seen your name flashing on the TV and on billboards and heard you on the radio and flyers all the time, they're gonna recognize, oh, no, they're legit. They probably read a little bit about it versus somebody that they have, they're like, I don't know that person. So you've gotta get your grassroots. Um, obviously you can use different portals that are specifically for subjects. Um, you know, we've got Subject Well, we have study kick. Um, there's Galen pharmaceutical, uh, Galen recruitment. I mean, there's a lot of them out there that will work with like Clint Edge um, that will work specifically with sites. Um, you always try to get recruitment money from your sponsor. Um, the other thing that always like makes me cringe a little bit is when we're filling out feasibilities. They ask us if we have the database. Obviously, we have the database. Yes, we do. We fill out that data. Then they ask you if they need if you need recruitment because you can't fill the study. You don't need recruitment, but you want recruitment. So I always encourage people, you can put in there, we have the database. However, it always works better. We love central campaigns, but it always works better if we're layering different techniques to round it out and have new people to our database. Um, also, a lot of times you have studies where they're looking for people not on medication yet. That's not in our database. They're going to be on medicine. <laughs> they're going to the doctor, you know, like neurologists, by the time they get to the neurologist, they've, they've been on medication. So sometimes you have to, you, you, you tell them, yes, I've got the database, but we're going to do better if we're also getting new leads to mix in there. Um, what else can we do? Um, giveaways. Again, not study specific. If you're building your database and you've got your top of mind IRB approvals for, you know, everything's done appropriately, um, but you can go to healthcare fairs. And again, just being in front of people and talking they, they will sign up to be in your database. Um, it, it's amazing what people will do for a free pen too. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys use local IRB or central? Central as much as possible. There were a few things wow. we had to 
Um, we uh, were doing inpatient studies for a while. Um, so we used a local art, well, it was, it was actually a hybrid, local and central. It was locally central. So you have experience with the local? Yes, at Morehouse, we have a, a Morehouse lo local IRB. And so if we, mm. use central IRB, we use a central IRB and then we submit documentation and IRB approval to Morehouse IRB so they are aware of everything that's going on as well. Interesting. I see. So when, wow. I've always wondered, Chris <laughs> and I actually uh, had this conversation because we don't have that much experience with local IRBs. So like if, like in, in your case uh, with Morehouse, if you're using a central IRB uh, for as many studies as you can, right? If there's a, like, does the local IRB still aware of it? Because you, you just said you filed something with them. Do they ever disagree on things and then who wins? They have not ever disagreed on something. We are very careful on what we what we proceed on. And there's never they've never proceeded on something that was questionable. I asked. So, okay. So I am curious. I'd like to follow up with that. Um, so do you when approached by a sponsor, they have a central IRB, you elect to work with that central IRB, do you still have to run the protocol and such by the local IRB? How does that work? No, we notify the local IRB that we are submitting it. And then when we receive IRB submission for that study, we then turn that, that submission to notification into them and then we renew with them annually. Okay, all right. We are notifying them. I mean, obviously if it was a bad study, they would, again, it, it wouldn't apply because we wouldn't pick a bad study. But yes, if they didn't agree with it, they would say something, but there's, they've been agreeable. So it's okay. more of a notification system and them knowing what's going on. So we were both right, Chris, on that CRA Academy. Right. Module. That's that's exactly why I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> we're both right. It's it's all good. Uh, let's see. I mean, this uh, this conversation can go on forever, but I want to be mindful of your time. I mean, Monica, Ashley, you guys have any other questions? Uh, yeah, actually, I did have another one. Um, how would you say? I mean, as far as there with more house. Um, did you say that it's a, a sorry HSBU correct or how did you what did with the HBU HBCU okay sorry um and so how do y'all focus very heavily on making sure you have like Spanish translations and things like that when you're dealing with um Latinos right in clinical research so I do not believe we have um uh, enough uh, PIs and coordinators to do a study in Spanish. That is a, a population that I am looking to also increase while I'm there. It's not my first goal, um, but we all the underrepresented populations, we definitely want to be represented. Sure. Our focus is um, the African-American black population, um, going and discussing um, any myths about research, um, talking about, you know, historical studies and how things are not the same now, um, answering questions they may have. Um, all that stuff, all the good stuff, all the good points that definitely need to be discussed, especially with diversity and inclusion. Um, but that's that's really good to know. And uh, yeah, we, we're, we're very well aware that the, the language barrier uh, in that is super, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a tough situation. And it's partially also why Latinos in clinical research is really wanting to bring in, you know, the, like what Dan always says, the grassroots, right? We want to also go to the colleges. We want to make it aware so that we have a 
more we have a bigger following to where that it's also you know students that come out that can be coordinators that can speak Spanish that are from rural areas get them job opportunities in areas that don't have Spanish speaking and so if you know somebody's watching this right now and you know of a student that would be considered for or would consider clinical research you know you make sure you you send them this uh webinar and so they can get a little uh educated as far as what looking at the clinical research can provide and free resources um I love it if we had a spanish-speaking coordinator at some point and we are looking to grow we're our our heart we are hiring we go awesome why well, I, I know we spoke right uh you, our our website all you have to do is just go in there and put up whatever job openings y'all have. Um, our, our members are always going in there and looking and applying. We do. Uh, we have a mobile unit. I just think that is the most fascinating, amazing thing so that we can also go to the rural areas. That's uh, another uh, good example up until yesterday when we're no longer currently giving the Johnson & Johnson, but the one in, you know, we we're offering inject the vaccine on campus and we, that people, they were like, we want the one injection. We're like, no, we're using those on the mobile units so that the rural areas, we just have to hit that area once. So that was, I, mean, I loved that. We are also recipients of 2.1 million of that Bloomberg grant that was handed out this week. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited to be able to go administer more vaccines. Awesome. I think that's really awesome, amazing because when I was in college, um, I was pre-med at the time as well. Um, I was working with this uh, physician who was from Kenya and he, he also uh, went to Mexico. He learned Spanish and then he came to the US, went to a rural area city where I was from and he was able to get funding. He got this huge, huge uh, bust not necessarily members bust. He facilitated it with, you know, equipment, and we would travel to the colonias and and um, speak to a lot of potential patients. I mean, most of these people had never even seen a doctor in five six years. There was even one patient where we took his creatine, and it was extremely high. And so we instantly took him to the hospital, and he apparently they were able to situate that, which is great. But I thought that was also pretty amazing. But that's a very good examples to what you say, you know, the one-on-one -on -one is super important, you know, especially if you can speak the language and uh, eloquently explain the situation and, or not the situation, but like, you know, the study and, and how it would benefit them. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we hope to definitely do that. And uh, we would really love for you to uh, post up the job openings you have, um, who knows one of our members who's, you know, bilingual uh, would be able to, to interview and, and you know situate y'all with that that um, particular uh, to say boundary right would be yeah. great. <clears throat> I think Morehouse so with the you know the fact that it's private. Um, I think there's a lot of autonomy you guys have that you know public universities may not get like the central IRB. You know I know especially here in California. I mean, the UC system, they probably don't even know what central IRB means. So, you know, you guys definitely have a lot of advantages going for you guys. I know before the pandemic, uh, there was a lot of talk, at least from some of the universities I was dealing with here on the West Coast, the, the public universities. Uh, there was talk about them circumventing this red tape and bureaucracy by partnering with private sites. Uh, strategically in their communities. This was one of the ways they wanted to increase diversity as well. It doesn't sound like Morehouse needs to do that, but do you guys look into 
partnerships like that with private sites? So we do, we have a community provider network. So graduates of Morehouse School of Medicine who stay in the community can join this network. Um, and I, I'm still acclimating to it, so I don't wanna misspeak about it, but it is addressing the local need. Um, again, it's graduates, so they also know what, our, what the goal is. Health equity, um, culturally congruent coaching is one of Dr. Pimu's um, co uh, programs. She's got a, a phenomenal TED talk on it. Um, but yes, yeah, so this community provider network is physicians that have graduated and have their own practices, may be involved in research, may just want to refer patients into research. Nice network. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, comforting to hear. I guess uh, the universities I was dealing with were onto something there because I think this is more and more common these days. Yes, definitely. Well, you are located in Atlanta, right? Atlanta. It's in Atlanta? I, I am, though I am from Fairfield, California. <laughs> oh, and, and, and the, the $1 million question, do you speak Spanish? <laughs> well, she has a Mexican accent. <laughs> but, you know, that's honestly also partially why, I mean, we're, we're starting to do uh, Spanish interviews. Uh, I missed the first one, but I will be on the next one. Um, sí, estaba muy bueno. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, you know, uh, I speak Spanish, I understand it 100%, um, but I speak it a certain, a certain amount, right? And uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that there's Spanish speakers and then there's semi-Spanish speakers. And, you know, so a good representation of the whole, you know, amount of from here to there is important and, and so, spectrum and, and, and the spectrum. somewhere yeah, and in the middle there i am actually no, i'm more towards the i'm more towards Spanglish. the non-speaking but i gotta practice yeah. <laughs> yeah. spanglish yes yes for sure but thank you so much Anna, for this interview and uh honestly i'm really excited to see you know um the amount of uh, information and knowledge that's going to be you know, received from your webinar that we have with you in June. So for those of y'all watching, if you really enjoyed this, please do not miss out on uh, our live monthly webinar, Shana, in June. I think it's the 8th, but you know we'll post it up later. Um, thank, yeah, thank you, Ashley. You. Ashley's getting the hang of this. this is good. I'm getting comfortable. I like I'm it. I like it. I was just about to say that, and you, you said it perfect. <laughs> And for those that want to get to know Shana, you know, LinkedIn underneath the video and um, get to know her because in June, it's only coming up in two months, yeah. she's going to be the presenter. And we're going to have a lot more to talk about because this could easily go three hours, but we want to be mindful of uh, everyone's time. Yeah. So thank you so uh, much. Before, before we finish, her name doesn't sound Latino, but she is Latino. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Anna. It's thank been you great. So much. And I look forward to speaking with you again in June. Thank you. Thank you, Shannon.